My Year of Bad Sex, written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Part 30. Perhaps it was the days getting shorter, a natural desire for hibernation and physical comfort, that increased my manhunting in the final weeks of the year. Winter draws on, as the old joke goes. Winter draws off, more like. And I've always been a fan of commando style. It's titillating and time-saving. I was trying to arrange a hook-up with Giulio, the hairy Italian. You know, you can piss in my hole. But with our schedules it wasn't coming together. And other men were intervening for both of us. A year before our meeting on Grinder, Giulio had had an accident and broken his hip in a fall. By coincidence, a friend of mine, Ian, had suffered the same thing more recently, and was frustrated with the progress of his rehabilitation. I only walked for ten minutes today. I went up a flight of stairs, but I couldn't come down. I managed to hobble along without crutches, but still needed my stick. Jonty, do you think I will ever be able to walk without a limp or ride my bike again? I asked Julio about his recovery from surgery, and then said, "'Come to think of it, would you be willing to talk to my friend Ian? He gets despondent, and it'd be great for him to hear from someone who's further down the path of recovery.' Julio said he would. I put them in touch with each other, and they had a conversation. Both of them reported back to me later that the other was a lovely man. I agreed. I'd done my good deed for the day, as Mum would put it. But there were other deeds to be done with Julio.' We finally did get that massage in the diary. He was very late arriving at my place because, A. I'm Italian, baby. You said two-ish. Three o'clock is two-ish to me. And because, B. He'd been looking for dark chocolate, which I'd said I preferred. He skilfully managed to imply his lateness was my fault for, A. Ignoring his nationality, and, B. Liking a type of sweet that was harder to find. He also brought a bottle of good white wine. Forgiveness came quickly. He was a nice guy, a generous guy. He had a sense of humour, a brain, and a cheeky smile. We sat with the wine and had some pleasant chat and jolly laughs. It was all easy and enjoyable. No complaints in that department. Someone to sit at dinner with, or the opera, or the ballet. But naked? Hmm. Julio was very hairy. When I say very hairy, I mean scary hairy. Unusually so. Fleecy, like a woolly animal chest and stomach and legs and thighs and face and head and back and shoulders and bum, everywhere but the palms and soles. I know for some that's a real plus, and good luck to you all shaggy shaggers. For me, though, it's a thumbs down, and it's so much less satisfying to massage. There's friction between fingers and fibres, instead of movement on the muscle. And the amount of oil, really! OPEC would adjust the price of crude if they knew. Speaking of crude, I fucked him. It was hot, and he was a great kisser. Top marks for that. We also had a conversation about his hairiness. Sounds like a title, doesn't it? I commented in a neutral fashion. You're, um, you're quite, quite hairy, aren't you, Julio? Yes, he said. I am, and I love it. People keep telling me I should trim and shave and wax. What, to please them? No, I love being hairy. Fair dues. I didn't come. I think it felt a bit too bestial for me, like being the naughty zookeeper. I love Bobo, and Bobo loves me. I'd see Julio once more, but it wouldn't be the fuzz that ended my interest. Ironically, it was the way he treated animals that was the problem. Did I what? Oh, that! 
No, I didn't take up his kind invitation. The following day I got a real surprise, an elegant, swellegant delight. Giulio the hairy Italian was on Tuesday. On Wednesday I met up with a young Asian lad called Wailun. I say young. On his Tinder profile he gave his age as nineteen. That could have been true. He looked even younger. His hair was dyed what was once called peroxide blonde. It was dramatic and crazy, and really suited him. Asian? Blonde? Not my typical quarry, not in any respect. He also had a mouth of squashed-in teeth that I think he tried to hide with those closed-lipped smiles. But there was something sassy and bold about him that really appealed. When we were chatting, Wailun said that if we did meet for lunch, I had to be a true gentleman. Oh, yes. No kissing, no touching. Okie dokie. We agreed the time and place in Spitalfields for some reason. Not convenient for me at all, but I didn't mind a bit of a schlep for this intriguing young man. It was lunch for a change, not massage and not sex. I walked through the market, past the stallholders, busy office workers, and a few tourists milling around, people chatting, leaning against the iron pillars of the building. I got to the shop where he said he'd be, Lululemon. There were a few shoppers browsing among the racks, but no sign of Wailun. Was I early or late? No, I was bang on time, as always. I checked my phone. There was a message from him. I think you just walked past me. I left the shop and looked around. Leaning against a grey iron support was a tall, exotic creature, blonde hair peeping out from under a headscarf, eyes hidden by dark shades, wearing a light jacket and dramatically tall in four-inch heels, and chic in a black sheath dress down to mid-calf. Why, Lun? He lowered his sunglasses enough to peer at me and smiled. Wow, I said. You look amazing. I love this. We did an air kiss-kiss thing while holding shoulders, which seemed the right approach, and agreed to find somewhere to eat. As we walked, he slipped his arm through mine. I felt honoured to be escorting him to lunch, and oddly proud of him. He wasn't beautiful, but like those plain actors who convince with sheer star quality, his chutzpah made him glamorous and classy. He also wasn't pretentious, telling me he hadn't had time to shave his legs properly, and at one point pausing to jiggle about and free his heel from a crack in the pavement. It was all rather Marilyn Monroe. We laughed. In fact, we laughed a lot. I could hardly believe his outrageous shtick and my luck in being included in this little public improv scene. I was happy to play the supporting role. It was a privilege to do so. I'm not sure people noticed anything much as we walked through the streets. This was London, after all. Eyelids would not be battered at such mundane matters. An elderly gent and a tall blonde woman walking arm in arm slowly down the street. So what? But I thought, the guts, the balls, the courage at nineteen. We found a nice little cafe and I bought us lunch. Wailun peeled off the scarf and removed his shades. He still looked far too smart and bewitching for this ordinary calf. He told me he hadn't been in the country long from his native Singapore, where his life was too restricted. His dream was to be a catwalk model. He'd done one show at home and already had one set up in London the following week. He was somehow shy and confident at the same time. He laughed, but didn't like his squashed-in teeth. If he had the money, though, he'd get his nose narrowed first. That was his priority. He went to the toilet at one point, and I later realised that on his return I hadn't asked if he went to the gents or the ladies. 
the question would have been too obvious, predictable, and Wailun was anything but that. I also hadn't asked him about the whys and whats of his outfit, his sexuality, or to define himself with labels. I accepted him as he presented himself, as he did me, and our conversation was probably much the same as if he'd been in a t-shirt and jeans or a suit. He told me about his childhood, his family, and his hopes for his time in London. As I listened and watched him eat, I realised two things. I didn't find him sexy, and he was incredibly skinny. I wondered only days later if his trip to the loo had involved shoving fingers down his throat, if it was true what they said about models and eating disorders, and if he was determined to be one, or was I buying into false stereotypes? He talked about using my body to fund my travels, and that set alarms ringing. Was he doing gentle rental? Did being a true gentleman, I asked, involve buying him more than pancakes and coffee? He had referred earlier to having been in Lululemon to look at a dress he wanted, for example. He said demurely that of course it would be fine if I wanted to, but no, it wasn't necessary. It was just a suggestion. <laughs> I didn't rise to the bait. I was kind and generous, but up to a point. Pancakes, yes. Dresses, no. I couldn't quite pinpoint the feeling I had alongside Wailun, but it was close to the pride, fascination and reflected glamour that I imagined Osgood feels for Daphne in Some Like It Hot. After our leisurely lunch he pulled his scarf over his platinum curls and perched the shades back on the sweet, plump nose that he'd be butchering when he could afford it. We strolled to the tube station arm in arm, and at a pace that indicated either that we had all the time in the world, or that one of us was struggling on very high heels. I loved everything about our meeting. There was something superbly dignified about this leggy young thing, several inches taller than me, serving a defiant middle finger to any haters. Not parading on a catwalk at a fashion show in front of a blasé, unshockable audience of insiders, but here, in mundane old Bishopsgate, on a drizzly November afternoon. I felt the audacity, the bravura of the performance, and was thankful for the invitation to play second fiddle. We gave each other more air kisses at the tube and went our separate ways. No touching, no buying of gifts, no hint of sex. I was the perfect gentleman, and he was the perfect lady. I saw Wailun after that on Instagram. He'd done his first London walk and was creating quite an online presence. I saw images of him being fabulous and pseudo-famous. I wasn't surprised. Still only a teenager, but he was already going far and fast. I wondered if his nose would go with him or be sacrificed along the way. Wailun was Tuesday, Geoffrey was Thursday. Geoffrey was unusual in a different way. No dress, no blonde hair, but definitely unusual. He was around 30, attractive, open face, and very chatty online. But several times he'd asked me something that I'd answered just a few minutes earlier. Where did I live? What did I do? What was I into? The typical fare. If he'd forgotten, why didn't he just scroll up to check? W1. Journalist. Top and when I told him my availability, he didn't get it. I said I'd be free only on two nights of the week, Monday and Thursday. He asked if I was free on Wednesday. No, I reminded him when I was free, Monday and Thursday. And then a few hours later, he sent a message asking, how about Friday? Weird and annoying and intriguing. Was that some kind of condition or just being bloody irritating? He'd also stood me up a couple of times and I was getting well pissed off with him. 
His excuses seemed lame, but he was persistent. My resistance couldn't last. We finally got to the point of meeting. Now, if I could just tell him which part of London I lived in again, oh! On that Thursday, yes, Geoffrey, Thursday, I had a message from him. Did I have food in? Would I cook for him? And by the way, he would only eat things that were gluten-free. I was a little taken aback by his assumptions, but hey, it was no big deal to go to the supermarket for pasta, pesto, and veg for a salad. He arrived. I said I could cook him something. He said he didn't want to eat. Okay. We had a drink and a nice enough talk about stuff. A lot of the chat was political. It's something I'm interested in, and it was his work. He referred to cabinet ministers by their first names. Boris, brackets Johnson, Michael, brackets Gove, Andrea, brackets Loathsome. He said he felt confident the Tories would win a majority in the general election in a few weeks. I live and breathe politics, he said avidly, but he couldn't remember the date of the vote. We moved to the massage table. It was a pleasure to work on his traps, lats, rhomboids and glutes. Geoffrey did have a lovely back. The trouble was with his front. That's where his mouth was, and he wouldn't shut the fuck up. We went from table to bed, and everything then became bizarrely mechanical. "'Are you going to rim me now?' he said. "'Shall I suck your penis?' I said, "'Yes, and yes.' There was more micromanaging. "'I like it when you're on your knees there. No, like that. Yes. Then I can put my hand here, and if you just bend forward, no, this way, with your left hand touching me there—' Was this how he behaved with Michael and Boris and Andrea? I was polite and kept my own response private. Maybe I was the weird one to find this weird. Who could tell? But I was relieved when it was time for him to leave. Let me know when you get home safely. I was the boy, after all, who never had to be reminded to write a thank-you note to Auntie. The next morning I had a message from Geoffrey to ask when we could meet again. Uh, never? I kept my tone vague and referred to one of these days and in the future. He didn't get my gentle declining of his offer and was knocking at my metaphorical door for weeks and months to come. A few days after I'd said no to another meeting because the magic wasn't there but he was a lovely man and he'd find plenty of other admirers, etc., etc., I got a message. Are you free on Tuesday? What the hell? Even after I'd moved from vague to unambiguous, from charming to assertive, he'd pop up again every few weeks with the same request. I half expected him to ask if I was top or bottom, and did I live in London? No, Geoffrey, no. No, 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 nothing personal. Wait, of course it was personal. It's always personal. I finally blocked him, after telling him I was going to and why. It's the only time I've done that. I didn't feel good about it, but Geoffrey... Oh, Geoffrey... You left me no choice. The four days after that were a sex-free zone, but Tuesday brought a double whammy. Some guys put photos on their Tinder, Scruff or Grinder profiles that are fairly neutral. A smiling face or a serious, pouty look. Some put images of themselves with other people, and you have to scroll through to see which one is the common denominator. Once in a while there's a man with a woman, a female friend, or a sister, or even his mum. Odd, but then why not? There are photos of people trying to be wacky and kooky, and trying too hard to show that they have a sense of humour, thereby proving the opposite. 
photos with dogs and cats and cows and sheep, photos in New York and York and at the Grand Canyon and endless ones near the Eiffel Tower and in pools and on beaches and in trunks and in suits. Nelson's photo was none of those. Nelson was another one-off, but in a surprising way. Nelson's chosen image was of himself on horseback, not on some trek in Wales or Texas, but in a scarlet jacket, silver breastplate with sash, a highly polished helmet, steady, with the peak low over his eyes, a strap resting on his chin, and a plumed sort of pom-pom rising from the top. He had shiny black leather boots up to his knees, the reins in his left hand, and he was holding a ceremonial sword low in his right hand. What the fuck? What the actual fuck? A real-life soldier? Not in horny khaki, but full ceremonial fig, tarted up to the max in his super-camp, super-sexy gear. With a flick of the thumb I swiped right and came to attention. He was efficient in his communication. He said yes, he was a palace guard, but wouldn't say any more, and didn't want to talk about his work. The tease. He used the picture to catch my imagination, and then denied me all the succulent details I was salivating for. In fact, he was another who described himself as discreet. So I said, that's fine, we can shake hands in the street, just like Craig the Builder from Watford. So that, a few hours later, is what we did. He was a nice guy, I thought. We chatted over wine, but he kept shtum about his job, wouldn't go there other than to say it wasn't easy getting the sort of fun he wanted. Hence our meeting. I began the massage. He was very pale, but his back was so smooth and unblemished. Not like marble, but soft skin over firm muscles. I could usually tell from the latissimus whether someone was right or left-handed, and enjoyed telling them my guess early in the process. It surprised them, and that amused me. But with Nelson, I was wrong. I said left-handed, but he said no, right. This time I was the one surprised. I pressed on, literally, and when it came to his thighs I found two massive, powerful pistons. The vastus literalis and medialis, rectus femoris and adductor longus were sights to behold and to be held. His cock was slim but nicely proportioned, but it didn't matter, because he'd already told me I wouldn't be sucking it. I'm not gay, he confirmed. I'm eighty-twenty. Oh, yes? Yeah. Girls for romance, boys for fun. So I was a boy, a sixty-five-year-old boy. In fact, Nelson did say, yes, Daddy, quite a lot, slightly too often. I got the distinct feeling he was trotting out the words because I'd mentioned my penchant for that dynamic earlier. In this scenario, it didn't quite work for me. It felt ersatz. Then he said something about his boy pussy, and I nearly lost my heart on. This was getting further and further from the image of the butch soldier in uniform. I'm a massive fan of pegging, he declared suddenly. I racked my brain for the correct response. Uh, me too? Uh, it's not my thing? I don't go camping myself? Finally, honesty was best. What's pegging? Getting fucked by a woman with a strap-on dildo. You know. Oh, yes, right, um, pegging. I knew now. He did have a lovely and welcoming ass, and it was a huge pleasure to fuck him. He seemed to enjoy it, too, even though I was only a boy and my dick was flesh, not silicon. He'd given me orders not to come inside him, but over his face. Yes, sir. I duly obliged, and I resisted swallowing his cum as instructed. We had more wine and more chat in the sitting-room, and he brought up the subject of my profile on the app, quoting back at me. Likes, apostrophes and avocados, 
dislikes, Tories, Brexiters and Stephen Fry. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Don't tell me he's your uncle. No. He shook his head, paused and then said, I'm not a Tory. Good. I wouldn't be considered a Tory. Okay. I'm further to the right than that. What? No. How dare he? Why tell me now after we've fucked? Could you ever fuck a Tory? I just had. Worse. I wanted to scrub my dick, fumigate the flat and disinfect the sheets. Thank God my seed was not inside him or his in me. Small mercies, but ones I hoped would be enough for my friends to forgive me once I told them the circumstances and showed them that horny picture of Nelson on his horse. There then ensued a debate, naked, in the sitting-room. I was on the sofa, he on a dining-chair. We each put our points from opposite ends of the political spectrum. Nelson said he'd been much further off the scale, in fact off the rails, for a couple of years, and it was joining the army that got him back to safety. It was the structure and discipline that I needed, he said. I guess you'd consider the forces as fairly conservative. I reckon so, yes. Was he serious? And because they are, what they taught me was routine and order. So I have self-discipline now. I'm no longer off the rails. That's great. I see what you mean. So it's a good place for you psychologically. It was. But after two years it's driving me mad. I spend far too much time polishing. And life in barracks is no life. Not if you want to branch out, be unconstrained by a rigid system. What else would you do then, Nelson? I'm going to get out next year and go back to art. Art? Yeah. I want to work in galleries, curating exhibitions. That's my real love. I was amazed. I'd judged him too harshly as some unthinking bonehead and felt bad. I was about to have reason to reassess him once more. From the left-wing, right-wing stuff... Inevitably, the subject of Britain's withdrawal from the European Union came up, rearing its head like a cobra ready to strike. And it did. I'd recently been on another pro-Europe march with my huge bollocks to Brexit flag. Nelson took the opposite stance, but, curiously, not because he had opposite views, he was very much pro-Europe and talked of what we fought for in two world wars. But if you think that, trouble is, he went on, the standard of political debate has been piss-poor, and the little Englanders have got the bit between their teeth. Whatever the economic or social arguments, they'll never agree to staying in Europe. As far as they see it, they won. By 52% to 48, which is a victory they'll never relinquish, he said. The only way they'll change their minds is through the empirical day-to-day -day experience. So we have to give them what they want. The UK goes it alone. Or tries to. The country will suffer drastically. Everyone will be so much worse off. Exactly. And only when the lemmings of the Leave Brigade feel that in their pockets will there be a groundswell for being part of something bigger, part of a union of European states. Hang on, Nelson. That sounds bonkers, but it makes sense. We have to sacrifice our present unease for the sake of future generations. The long haul, bigger picture, lose a battle to win the war. And it dawned on me that, unlike the handful of people I knew who had voted Leave, or the Leavers I'd seen interviewed, Nelson and I listened to each other. I didn't dismiss his beliefs, and he didn't shout over my opinions. We disagreed fundamentally, but could do so in a civilised way, without sloganising or name-calling. Perhaps because half an hour earlier I'd had my dick up his ass. He leaned forward slightly and looked seriously at me. Can I... can I ask you something? Of course. What? My thoughts on the European Court of Justice, the colour of British passports, a border in the Irish Sea. Can I suck your cock? 
I laughed. Are you sure it isn't too far to the left? He knelt between my legs and got to work. He was right. He had self-discipline. He made it hard, and then he sat on it, fucking himself as he bounced up and down until he came again. Blimey. Lovely, 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 but not out, far right, basically straight, in the army but wanting art, didn't want a blowjob. Why are people so weird, I thought, or was that even it? How about creative? Nelson showered while I finished my wine. As he was about to leave, just after my request for a hug and a text reassuring me of his safe return, he said, "'By the way, you were sort of right, you know?' "'In what way?' "'I can see why you thought I was left-handed. My muscles are overdeveloped on that side, because I hold the reins in my left hand and control tango for hours on parade with my legs.' "'Hence those amazing thighs,' I said. "'Being vindicated gave me real satisfaction.' He left." By the time I'd got to my phone to take a screenshot of my latest hookup in his military finery, Nelson had deleted the image of him on Tango, so I couldn't brag to my friends, look who I just shagged. His strategy had defeated me, but at least I now knew what pegging was, although I doubted how useful that would be. I drained my glass of wine and tidied away the table and towels. What a bizarre, unsatisfying night. But it wasn't over yet. My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Music and studio production are by Andy Mills. My Year of Bad Sex is a Protocol production.